Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerandese. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is more fondly known on some corners of Twitter as Dracula on a Boat. Yes, the oceans are now battlefields. It's, <laughs> the, the, the oceans are now Dracula's. This is a movie, it's it's a self-evidently good idea for a movie, and it's something I've been saying since we were in high school, and Lord knows I was not the first. And mm-hmm. it's not like, I mean, I, I might have just picked it up from Cracked.com or somewhere like that, but I think the idea for this movie was so self-evidently good that many hundreds or thousands of people arrived at it independently. You know, there's, yeah. there's, 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 well, there's this one standout chapter of Dracula where he's on a boat and he massacres the crew of this ship. No protagonist characters. They're all expendable. Obviously yeah. this movie has to appoint protagonists because it's set entirely on the boat. But in the novel, Dracula just makes short work of all these terrified sailors and it's just kind of a neat little bottle episode of a thing. I know going back 15 or more years now, the line was always, and again, I was not the first or the only person to say this, it'd be great. It'd be just like Alien, you know? It's, yeah, like, right. it's like Alien with Dracula. Of course, what's that? Dracula 3000? This, this is not, like, you know, they've done Dracula <laughs> in space. They've done Alien right. with Dracula right. in a much more literal fashion but there was always this sense that there was a great movie just waiting to be made out of that one chapter now this consensus accelerated i think to the point where it became sort of a meme opinion and almost became sort of passe Uh, Mm -hmm. luckily for me as of about a year ago i started falling back on well my ideal version of frankenstein would be set entirely on a boat (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> the frame narrative of the book is all on a ship uh landlocked or, or ice locked in the arctic and uh i think you could you could do a lot with that the kenneth branagh version preserves that frame narrative but is you I know will have my revenge Frankenstein. <laughs> but is is 90 percent or more flashbacks and i think that you could do more of a 50 50 split or you could do i don't know anyway i've defaulted to that now just because a version of the demeter movie is now upon us and it's so so it's like a like a six out of ten <laughs> yeah it's in the range of a five and a half to a six out of ten yeah i didn't dislike it it was not an unpleasant viewing experience there's some fun to be had in there but it's not one I'm eager to put on the shelf, assuming no. I'll even have the opportunity to put it on a shelf, production of physical media being what it is these days. Well, yeah, and I, if anything, I'm being slightly charitable towards it because I'm partial to movies like this. If this had come out, you know, in the early aughts, say, when I was in middle school or thereabouts, I would have been keen on it just because I hoovered up any van helsingy league of extraordinary gentleman-esque thing that i sure. could get my grubby little paws on back in the day because there was a sense in which i was building a proto dark universe of the mind you know, <laughs> before before universal had that same idea and it, it became a, a cinematic abortion i've still never seen the tom cruise mummy i've seen shape of water though which is you know <laughs> apparently originated with del toro's pitch for creature of the black lagoon which is hilarious 
That is hilarious. They, I they shot don't it think down, I ever knew then, that. Yeah, they poo-pooed it, the, the suits, legendarily. I don't know. I, I believe that this is substantially true. They thought it was too artsy-fartsy, and then he went and made the thing, no doubt with modifications and less interference from Universal, obviously, just to yeah. say none. And, and, and won uh, and, a series of Oscars. <laughs> best picture, yeah, <laughs> for, for a Creature from the Black Lagoon movie. <laughs> oh, what a what a prince. Yes. <laughs> anyway, the last voyage of the Demeter, as we've kind of pointed to, is based on a chapter from the novel Dracula, which it's received treatments in both of the like really primary Dracula canon films, like Nosferatu and, and Dracula 31, mm-hmm. both do some stuff on the boat. It's in the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola one as well, although... It's done sort of expressionistically, as I recall. And weirdly, I remember Anthony Hopkins narrating the captain's log. It's like, it's like Anthony, mm. he's also the priest at the beginning, in addition to obviously being Van Helsing. So <laughs> right. there's this strange, like, Anthony Hopkins quantum leap thing going on in that movie, where he just keeps <laughs> body hopping and battling Dracula in different bodies at different times, at different places, different centuries. And I don't think you see a single human figure the whole the whole sequence which is all of a minute long but there's a shot of a a bucket of blood it looks like being thrown onto a billowing sail that's always sort of stuck with me with brain slashing at the the canvas i adore that movie and there's nothing in this movie to rival even just that one minute in terms of you know atmosphere or iconography but it's not a bad looking movie by any means sure it looks just fine i like its take on dracula well enough didn't at first and then it sort of grew on me it's a middling affair yeah the dracula design at first it struck me kind of like a a salem's lot sort of look yeah not to harp on about the coppola movie ad nauseum because unchecked i will do exactly that (laughs) right the lightest provocation and this episode is going to give me no shortage of opportunities to to launch into that so i'll try to restrain myself but there's one of gary oldman's many transformations in that movie is a a a bat a humanoid bat creature very much like the dracula design in this movie it's when he's uh again sparring with anthony hopkins and he goes like look what your god has done to me you know, and then the crucifix burst into flames. It's a uh, uh, sublime. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. The Demeter is a ship on which Dracula makes his transit from the Balkans, Transylvania, all the way to England. Him and his 50 boxes of his special Transylvania dirt. Transylvania black gold. Um, <laughs> as they call it. Yeah. As they call it in the dirt business. <laughs> boy time's been hard on those on those poor dirt farmers nobody's buying the dust bowl was good to them and ever since (laughs) it's all downhill from the depression (laughs) yeah it's hard to recapture those heady days of the great depression (laughs) Uh, well i mean dracula does have a texan in it i could see him (laughs) 
Transylvania. Yeah, yeah, soil. yeah. Quincy Morris talking about yeah. Transylvania black gold. But I think as a Texan, he would just, if he said black gold, he'd definitely be talking about oil. Yeah. It'd have to be. In the novel and all the other adaptations, we pretty much see all of this in retrospect. I mean, it's based on a captain's log, and we get sort of a diary of blow by blow, but we don't. Uh, it's not a direct experience. It's at a remove, which, to be fair, the whole novel kind of is because it's an epistolary novel. That's the kind of weird thing about Dracula. But uh, here, obviously, we're going to be witnessing this whole unfolding tragedy firsthand. And we have, I guess, a handful of protagonists on the boat. We have the captain, played by Liam Cunningham, wearing a set of glorious mutton chops. Mm-hmm. We have the first mate, played by David Dasmalkian, most recently mentioned in the Boogeyman episode. Boogeyman, yes. It was kind of odd because he's playing kind of against type in this movie. He's not a pervert. Yeah. Well, he's not. He's not a pervert or just some other kind of weirdo. You yeah. know, he's he's usually just very odd, and here he's not necessarily like a pleasant person (laughs) but he's you know a gruff sailor and he's more of a secondary protagonist than just this oddball weirdo on the fringe so that was kind of interesting and then we have a ship's doctor who joins the crew at their last port before shipping out his name is mr clemens and then we have a boy it's the captain's grandson He's also the protagonist of Cobweb. We're just seeing a bunch of repeat customers (laughs) in terms of recent episodes. And then we have, well, there's one other person that we'll we'll get to, and I don't mean Dracula. (laughs) Right. Well, on on that note, the movie is, it, it, it does retain a certain amount of the book's epistolary flavor with the occasional narration. It's truest to the spirit of the book when it comes to that character who we have yet to really touch on. She's introduced relatively early on. We're we're introduced to a sickly woman, beautiful, ailing woman, and she is very quickly given a seemingly nonstop series of blood transfusions, which is (laughs) (laughs) one of the main sources of interest in the book. Mina, I think it is, whose veins are just... A, a veritable carousel of blood <laughs> just like cycling in and out <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> for sure so I, I'm, I'm glad that the movie doesn't shy away from the wackiness of that because naturally knowing what we know now about blood type that many transfusions would be as fatal as a vampire in all likelihood just coming from the wrong donor whoever whoever's forearm is nearest <laughs> Well, you know, uh, maybe she lucked out and she's just AB positive, so she she can take any blood. Well, and presumably Mina was too, you know, and that's and that's fine. I mean, point being, I'm I'm not knocking the movie for that. I sure, think that sure. It's good, that, it, that it leans into the, or that it doesn't shy away from the the potential absurdity, and it's not kowtowing to the plot hole police because the book didn't, and here we are. Yeah, and and fuck cinema sense. Yeah. <laughs> We open with a crawl that kind of is Fargo-like in its effort to impress upon us that this really went down in 1897. 
it's, it's weird spoiled. though it, it it's it, very, it, very weird the very last line you know it's like such and such events blah, blah 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 and then the very last line says based on the captain's log from the novel dracula yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm really glad that you had the same reaction to this as i did because i was utterly fucking baffled by that it's like you, you just if you're crediting the chapter in dracula this is not the place to do that you do that like before you give an opening blurb or you do it in the end credits. You've mashed together two things that have to remain separate. Yeah, so there's just this weird fourth wall break right at the outset. I was flabbergasted. It, it reads. It, I don't like. It, there's something kind of hasty and and really inelegant about it. I don't think Dracula is even italicized. Like I just. I I I, I was. It was on screen just for a, a matter of seconds, and. The fact that it was there at all was so shocking to me that I was having a hard time processing, you know, <laughs> the the finer points of the typography. But I, I was like, I looked at it and there were just like a hundred things wrong with it. It was it was very it wasn't even set apart on its own line. I don't think. Um, no, I don't think so. It was just kind of a weird addendum, but not whatever. Point being, it, it, it I don't know if this is the case, but it seemed to me that. Maybe at the last minute, someone got cold feet and thought, we need to tell people up front, this is a Dracula movie. But if you're going to do that, first of all, I mean, this would also be inelegant, but if you put it in the title, you know, Dracula, Last Voyage of the Demeter or something like that, if, if you're worried about putting asses in seats, then it's got to be on the poster. If they're already watching the opening crawl, then their ass is in the seat. You know, it, I don't know. It, it betrayed a certain insecurity, I thought. But I, I don't know. Are, are people going to walk out after the first 10 minutes because Dracula hasn't shown up yet and they need some assurance that he will eventually? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that, putting Dracula in the title, because I think I saw on Twitter, like maybe in Australia, the release title was Dracula colon The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Oh, really? So okay. apparently in some markets that has been done. All the more reason that it's weird that they put that in the crawl very weird it's i think the single weirdest moment in the movie and it's before anyone even opens their mouths or before you know before any human subjects even stray into frame which they do first we're treated to a glimpse of the shipwreck uh, it's an in medias res kind of thing and then people are scavenging through the wreck looking for survivors who is the last man standing i'm trying to remember i mean I could tell you if we don't care about spoilers, but as far as we know in this opening scene, nobody made it. Okay. They don't I, find anybody on the boat that's alive. I thought, all right. I was. I, I thought they found somebody. I was still reeling from based on the, the captain's log from the novel Dracula. <laughs> which... <laughs> right. The cop in charge talks to this shell-shocked younger man clutching yeah, the... Yeah, that's, that's what I'm remembering. He's like, I won't go back. I won't go back, sir. He was just another constable who like, okay. made the mistake of going on the ship by himself and seeing all of its horrors and retrieving the captain's log and then immediately running away. So. Right, it's like that line from Jurassic Park 2. It's like, where's the crew all over the place? That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the ship crashes into the harbor. That, there's a Demeter movie for you. I want a whole movie that's just the T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> wreaking <laughs> havoc on that cargo ship <laughs> yeah. and then putting himself back in containment somehow not to play pothole 
pothole police plot hole police <laughs> thank you very much um we cut back to i believe four weeks prior before the ship sets sail and we're introduced to a range of characters all of whom jim rattled off clemens is the one with the most powerful protagonist vibes about him he isn't even going to be accepted into the crew but then he so like dracula's box it would be wrong to even call it a casket it's just a big wooden crate yeah uh, dracula's crate shows up and immediately starts causing problems <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's got a um it reminded me of the stenciled uh, swastika on the side of the ark of the covenant crate and raiders it's mm-hmm. got a big like dragon insignia on it dracula you know yeah and this crate tips over and almost smooshes the cabin boy the captain's grandson yeah. And uh, Clemens leaps in and saves the day. You're hired, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, before this happens, so Clemens, uh, I, w- I thought this was kind of amusing. Clemens is a black dude. And the movie, having established a certain amount of wokeness quotient right off the bat, then is set back to zero immediately because Dracula's boxes of Transylvanian Earth are delivered to the ship by a sinister, shifty Romani <laughs> caravan person who, who I, I guess to his credit, wishes the crewmen Godspeed, good luck, basically. Yeah. And then he takes off. But, you know, this is all another artifact, another holdover from the novel, Dracula's human henchmen, other than Renfield, were all nomadic Romani, yeah. Eastern European folk. Anyway, he comes and goes, and then we're just left with the box, which, like I said, is real bad juju right from the jump. One of the sailors takes one look at it and is like, I'm not having any of that, and then he dips out. Yeah. He didn't tell me anything about the dragon. (laughs) I liked the dragon, which is to say the symbol on the side of the box. I, Mm -hmm. I, I like anything that reminds me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) <laughs> However, I would have preferred if the box had been a little more unassuming right off the bat. The the fact that it immediately tries to like it's like a it's like a death from one of the omen movies, you know, where I guess just the first one trafficked in these the most. It's like a final destination thing where this inanimate object contrives to murder a child within seconds of finding its way onto the deck. But you know, it is Dracula we're dealing with. He's one of the all time baddies. Mm-hmm. so as they're going through it's not the only box of its kind there's several and i don't remember why they start crowbarring them open but in short order they find a woman buried alive in transylvanian dirt well they they find her after they've been at sea for like a week i feel like they i just mean in terms of screen time not sure you know it's 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 a it's an early development but yes they are fully there's no land in sight and there is none for the remainder of the movie basically, until they crash on the rocks at Whitby. Right. She's puzzling to me. So she's not a vampire, but she was in a box full of soil from the Carpathians. And so, you know, you figure there's something vampiric about her, but she starts getting these blood transfusions and you just don't, you don't really know what to make of her in terms of whether or not she poses a threat to the crew. Now, pretty quickly, it becomes apparent that screenplay-wise, the reason to smuggle her aboard is so that she can give everyone the skinny on who Dracula is and what they're all in for, because he menaced 
her village in a previous life, basically. And it's handy to have a character like that. You know, everyone's been saying, I've been saying since high school, it'd be like Alien on a boat with Dracula. But the beauty of Alien, one of the things that's so great about Alien is that it is fear of the unknown in a very pure sense, where there are no experts on the alien in that movie. Even Ash, who knows more than he lets on, is learning on the fly, is just deducing things as fast as he can and relaying them to his superiors. But everyone is basically in the dark, Ash included. And that would be, I think, the wrong approach to a vampire movie, because we all know the rules with vampires. And so if a character can expediently say this is who dracula is for the character's benefit we don't need to see them connect those dots that worked in an outer space setting but not with this folkloric creature with whom we're extremely well acquainted at this point (laughs) yeah so she has real utility that way let's see a lot of this movie and for me this is the main reason that it gets demoted to like five and a half out of ten status most of the middle stretch of this movie is Night Watchman going, Oi, what's this then? And then getting jumped <laughs> by Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, just a, a say. Well, it, it, he starts with the livestock. Uh, a bunch of livestock get slaughtered in the night. And, and the uh, ship's the, dog. The ship's dog also beefs it. Yeah, pretty much. So, uh, does right the dog die.com? Yes. Affirmative. <laughs> And no, no vampire dog, tragically. I could have gone for maybe some Resident Evil action. You know? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we, we get those thriller set pieces, which are not very thrilling and very repetitive. And they're interspersed with scenes of the crewmen sort of muttering amongst themselves, what's going on? What are we going to do? And you have the resident expert, uh, whose name escapes me, the woman that they pulled out of the dirt, and she kind of fills them in. There are a few lines in here that I like. One of the crewmen observes that the ship is absolutely bereft of rats all of a sudden, and he says, a ship without rats, that's an ill omen, or words to that effect. And this is kind of counterintuitive in a sense, because... Nosferatu, most famously, connotes its Dracula with rodents and and with like plague-bearing vermin very strongly. When the ship touches down in that movie, just a tidal wave of rats pour into the city and start spreading disease. And Dracula is like a harbinger of, of disease in that movie. He's kind of like a pestilential figure. So either you go that route with it, or you go the totally opposite direction, which is what this movie does, and you have a creepy... You know, a conspicuous dearth of rats, which is also kind of unnerving in in a different way. So that would not, I'll say this, that would not have occurred to me if you sat me down and said, hey, you know that movie that you've wanted to see since you were in 10th grade? (laughs) Go on, go ahead and write it. It would not have occurred to me to do that. I would have gone for the old like Nosferatu movie shorthand of rats equal plague equal Dracula or whatever. And so I thought that was kind of novel. The only Night Watchman death sequence that I remember, and it's not necessarily for a good reason, is one in which a character does the usual thing, sees something in the shadows, goes to investigate, and Dracula leaps out at him. And it's a little more protracted than the ones we've seen up till now. We get a better look at Dracula. And Mm. the guy, he gets 
slashed. It's either, I think he's bleeding from the neck. You know, it's Dracula's MO, goes for the jugular. <laughs> but in any case, he's wounded. I don't remember exactly how. And he's belly dragging over the deck of the ship in the direction of just a laughably small knife. It's like, it's like a, a, there's, a, there's a shot of a knife clattering upon the deck, and he's crawling for it like it's a life-or-death thing. Like that knife is going to mean the difference between life and death. No, this is like, a death-or-death death situation. What you, it's shot like one of those scenes where, you know, the gun falls out of the character's hands, and the hero and villain are both going for it, and like, oh no, who's going to get the gun? It's like, Dracula could give two shits whether you get the knife or not. It's very, I don't know. And it's not shot with a sense of irony where, like, the character thinks the knife might matter, but we know it doesn't. The movie appears to be taking the knife question at face value, and I don't know why, mm -hmm. because we yeah. know who Dracula is even before the dirt lady told us. <laughs> Dracula, for the most part, not only does he not turn the dog, he mostly does not turn any of them and that begins to change around this point we get one character who comes back as a vampire or as a um maybe more of a familiar because he doesn't go all batty like dracula is in this movie i mean dracula when i say batty i mean membranous wings and, yeah and, well, and, he, and he doesn't ears. and he doesn't try and drink anyone's blood either he's just he's got these kind of cataract eyes milked over right he's this sort of like he's got a rasputin -y kind of beard he, yeah he just he is this kind of rasputin -y revenant shambling around and he mostly menaces the cabin boy the little kid and there's a long sequence where he chases him through the bowels of the ship at one point the boy makes to defend himself with another tiny knife which might be a little more efficacious in this instance it's hard to be sure yeah we don't know, we don't know exactly what we're up against here with the familiar if that's what we're calling him it goes on for such a long time that you figure the kid is like this movie's newt you know where like sure. he's just gonna he's gonna emerge from all of this unscathed because movies usually don't have the stones to to kill kids but the kid does get it but he does not get it from rasputin he gets it from dracula and that was some sleight of hand that kind of worked on me just because they're doing their Jack and Danny Torrance thing for so long, him and the guy who was turned, that you sort of don't expect Dracula himself to enter into it, and then he does. So I liked that, but I also thought that it was over long, and I don't know. I liked it, I guess, more in theory than in execution, as is so often the case. Yeah, the Dracula thing here was a little bit frustrating just because the kid's hiding out I think it's the captain's quarters. I think that's where he is. Yeah. And the captain's quarters are not huge. There's not that many nooks and crannies in there. And there's, as far as we can tell, no other way into that room except through the door that the kid has dead bolted, that the revenant is trying to bash his way through literally head first. Yeah. And yet, Dracula eventually just sort of appears from around a corner. He kind of, like, rises up off the ground and goes to work. And that would be fine if we were doing the whole, well, Dracula can turn into a cloud of mist and just go wherever the fuck he wants at any fucking time. Yeah. But the rest of the movie 
seems to treat him as having corporeal limits. So I don't think we can hang our hats on that in this particular instance. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it's not inconceivable that he could have just made himself inconspicuous enough that this kid who's freaking out didn't notice him, but it does strain credulity just a little bit. Yeah, and you're kind of just waiting for the scene to either kill him or not at that point. Yeah. You know, just get it over with. If you're going to do it, do it. Uh, and then the movie does it, and it does it in a way that you're not really expecting, which I applaud, but I did have mixed feelings about it. Like, I've, I think, managed to get across my favorite scene of all time where a kid gets got when you're not expecting it is the scene in Sleepy Hollow where the horseman massacres that whole family. The kid is oh, yeah. under the floorboards. You know, his mother's decapitated head rolls over and you see the eyes peering down at him like through the slats. And uh, yeah. horse, the horseman is like out the door practically on the threshold. And then as if sensing that he, he left someone behind, he just t- suddenly turns around inscrutable being headless <laughs> and, and just go guns right for the kid and, and just makes off with him, lifts him, you know, scalp first out of the ground. Uh, it's brutal. So then let's see here. How does this come about? They apprehend the Revenant and they lash him to the main mast or mizzen mast or whatever it's called. And he sets fire in the sunlight. It's the first of several conflagrations that we get in the last third or so of this movie. The vampires go up pretty spectacularly when they're torched. I say spectacularly in terms of the size of the blaze, not so much the effect. I'm more than tired of, you know, CGI fire. I've ranted about this on Twitter. I think I've brought it up on the podcast. In fact, I'm sure I did. I don't remember when, but not that long ago. So that doesn't do anything for me. It reminds me of Blade. Uh-huh. Which is funny because that is also CGI vampire skeleton combustion and looks demonstrably sillier than this does, but it's also got more character. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I wish that they had done more to weaponize it. it, not to keep bringing it back to Alien, but it sort of reminded me the missed opportunity here, I think, is... Not unlike the way alien blood in Alien eats through the hull of the ship, you know, and poses a danger to the crew. These ships are flammable. The vampires kick up such a ruckus when when they burn. You know, the flames are like sky high. You would think that they would torch one that way and then go like, oh, shit, we can't. That's not a reliable. We just barely, you know, maybe like a like a, a sail goes up or something. Or they, they, they lose some part of the ship's infrastructure, and they're like, oh, well, th- we have to be careful about how and when we go about that. And it doesn't really, it's not really treated that way. I think that could have been an interesting little logistical conundrum for them to have to get their heads around. But I guess in, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't happen that many more times. There's just not that much movie left. The next time it happens, is with the little kid who's about to get a burial at sea. He's under a tarp. And uh, this is sort of, it could have been better, but I liked, I don't remember who you said the actor was, the the guy playing the captain with his mutton chops. <laughs> oh, Liam Cunningham. Yeah. His his performance in this in this scene is pretty good, I thought. He goes like, he, he moved, I saw him move, meaning under the tarp. And uh, yeah. he pulls, pulls the tarp back. Kid is lying there looking corpsey. 
eyes snap open. Uh, that's all easy to see coming. Kid lunges at his dad, goes for the neck, and the kid starts burning in the daylight, and the flames leap off him onto, I think I called him the dad, he's the grandfather, the captain. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, 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 cap, the, the captain's face gets scorched, and he's reeling back, screaming, not even so much from the fire as so much as being distraught, I think. So it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a good performance. And then the kid mercifully is, is pitched into the water. And that's the last we see of him. Yeah. Before we get too far away from it, I do like the way they time the Revenant going up in flames simply because Clemens, his job, his character's job is to be the resident skeptic because, you know, he's the man right. of science. He's surrounded by all of these these fucking rubes. These superstitious sailors who are like, can't have a woman on the boat. It's a bad omen. The ship's cook is this Jesus freak who's just spouting on about yeah. the apocalypse, basically. I think to the, to the sailors' credit, old-timey and superstitious though they may be, and sexist, I think if a woman arrives on ship under those circumstances, that is a bad omen. <laughs> oh, sure. Absolutely. Would be, would be regarded as such even today. <laughs> yeah. So Clemens just spends the first 60% of this movie just like, yeah, that's all hogwash. It's just, there's something on the boat, but it's, you know, it's not a demon, etc., etc. There's nothing magical or supernatural about it. And he's even saying that 30 to 45 seconds before the guy just goes up in flames. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy proceeds to go up in flames and Clemens is just like slack jawed. <laughs> like, well, that that fixes that problem. The skepticism is wiped out now. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, amusing. Again, Sleepy Hollow is a big reference point for me there. Ichabod Crane does one of the better versions of that skeptic with egg on his face characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like when he, like, awakens having encountered the horseman for the first time, and he's like, I saw him, a headless horse, and Michael Gammon is just like, yeah, yes, we know, that's why you're here. That's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like everyone we've been trying to tell you. <laughs> um, <sighs> so, again, like I said, not a lot of movie left. It gets kind of talky at this point. I thought it lost some momentum. We, uh, of course, being that he's a skeptic, and she's the one who knows the most about vampires. The movie is sort of pushing them into each other's arms, Clemens and the, and the woman whose name escapes me. And they have a couple scenes together at this point, and she is still trying to establish Dracula's bad guy credentials this late in the game for some reason, which I thought was wholly unnecessary. It would be unnecessary even if it was a xenomorph, just because we've right. seen the grisly deeds at this point the war path that he's been on but especially if it's fucking dracula we don't need this scene <laughs> anywhere in the movie we kind of know the score anyway all she's really trying to impress on clemens is that if they don't kill dracula he, he's gonna pose like a civilizational threat yeah he goes from being a xenomorph to being the thing right <laughs> like if he reaches civilization it's over within a thousand and ninety-five days or whatever. Yeah, right. Cut to Wilford Brimley watching the like amoeba pixels, you know, gobble each other up. <laughs> <laughs> so the two of them, having had this mostly unnecessary conversation or almost entirely unnecessary conversation, resolve to take the matter seriously. 
he finally knows what they're dealing with here, that it's supernatural in nature. And so the two of them, and it is basically just the two of them at the end of the day, they resolve to kill Dracula or die trying and basically sink the ship and consign all of them to a watery grave, if that's what it takes. So the final battle plays out on the deck of the ship at night, rain's pouring down, and Dracula is flapping his membranous wings and flying here, flying there. We get a wingspan reveal at one point. He is very bat-like. He speaks occasionally. He, he says the most lines in this scene, but he doesn't really ever say anything special. No. And Clemens gets a whole speech where he's laying into him, going like, you're a coward. You're afraid of death. You, you, you sleep in dirt, which was the, the, the only line that I liked. <laughs> he says it so emphatically. <laughs> basically just calling him monstrous but not in a cool way well and and also not the whole shtick is like you want people to believe you're a god you're just a a beast yeah right exactly and then uh dracula gets his claws into him lifts him up by the throat and i don't remember what he says i just remember dracula i mean i just remember being struck by how generic it was i think he asks like oh no no, no. clemens says i don't fear you or something kind of like old timey sounding like that and dracula says you will and it's like okay he won't have a lot of time exactly (laughs) because then dracula proceeds to slit his throat or you know begin to he opens like a little incision with one claw and then the woman intervenes i don't remember exactly how but the long and the short of it is that she comes to the rescue and they've rigged the main mast to collapse in such a way that it pins dracula to the ship as it goes down and the two of them sort of jack and rose onto a piece of driftwood and and, right bob in the waves as the Demeter. Um, I mean, it doesn't go under. It makes it to shore, as we know, because we've seen the prologue and maybe... Well, yeah, n- not to mention this whole sequence takes place when they're, like, well within sight of the cliffs of Dover. Yeah. Like, they're really close. They waited too long. <laughs> then we get this would-be poignant send-off for the female love interest, where she says that she is basically half a vampire and has been the whole time. and Well, uh, she's got the cloudy eyes now. Right, and uh, the blood transfusions, the nonstop blood parade <laughs> has been, <laughs> has been uh, keeping the transformation at bay, but now she's a goner because the sun is rising, and she goes up in flames just like all the other familiars or what have you, and in her case... It's done in more of a, I don't know, like a beatific kind of way where it's almost like, not euphoric, but sort of the music is striving for this feeling of transcendence, which I just didn't, didn't you know, in catharsis that I just wasn't feeling at all. The Clemens washes ashore. Dracula has beaten him there. And Clemens is just going like Van Helsing mode. He's narrating to us about how he's going to wipe this beast from the face of creation on and on. And I have seen the darkness that lurks within the blah, 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 blah. And he's, uh, <laughs> this I kind of liked. It's it's a, a decent capper. If it were capping a better movie, I would have liked it even more because I would have been leaning forward in my seat when it happened rather than being mentally checked out and uh, sinking into my seat as I was. <laughs> Dracula, well, 
I, I like it and I don't. So he sees Dracula in a tavern and he's still just a big bat. <laughs> it's, it's really funny because there's, there's a sort of a, there's a slow turn. There's a reveal and you're expecting it to be like a sexy young Dracula, you know, or at least a, a slightly more human looking one. And uh, he's just exactly the same, except he's dressed like gentry. No, I mean, he is slightly more human looking. Ever he's so got, well, I mean, he's he's got more of a human skin tone, and he doesn't have anglerfish teeth like he did. He's he's got more like classic Count Orlock teeth. Yeah, but he he also still does have these cloudy, inhuman eyes, and yeah, the Orlock teeth are very alarming. He, yeah, and he, and he snarls. He would bl- right. he blends yeah. in better than he would if he were, you know, a big gray bat thing, but only just. <laughs> with a, yeah, with a 10-foot wingspan. <laughs> but yeah, but but only just. You can imagine some barkeep coming over and being like, what'll you have that go, oh, blimey. You know, it's like he, just looks, <laughs> he looks like a cryptid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and now for the part that I like. Clemens is uh, sketching. I feel bad that I don't remember her name because he's pining for her. Because like, right, he says, I've seen the darkness, but so have I seen the beauty. I think her name is Anna, just to Anna. Just that works throw that me. out there. That explains why you can't remember it, because it's fairly generic. Yeah. So he's sketching Anna, and I guess he must look down at the sketch pad for a second. Anyway, he loses the visual on Dracula, and then... The next thing you know, Dracula sort of phantoms past him and just gently grazes a hand or a claw over his neck, over the incision in his neck that he left there, almost like he's hinting, indicating that, you know, he could finish the job right now, but he's not going to. And he's sort of planting a flag almost in this sort of pseudo-homoerotic way. I mean, I'm not the first to say that the Dracula-Harker relationship in particular has those undertones or overtones anyway he seems like uh your 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 neck is mine basically i can have it now or i can have it later and i'm gonna get it when you least expect it and that's sort of a sort of a creepy note to end on a shame that we don't actually end on that note we instead end on like a sub hugh jackman van helsing shot of clemens walking off into the night ready to do battle with dracula and be a full-time vampire slayer how he's supposed to factor into the events of dracula i don't know i mean that crew is pretty crowded as it is seward and quincy it, yes morris or quincy morris is is, is one guy uh yeah know. quincy and morris <laughs> and, and abraham and van helsing and... yeah right exactly <laughs> well Yeah, that's the whole deal, and more after the break. Something ripped apart the animals. All the livestock? This looks like a bite. Search the ship. Everywhere. Evil is on board. Powerful evil. Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. 
podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. In the night, it drinks our blood. He is here. We call him Dracula. See the size of that bloody thing. I want to kill the cursed thing. He is on this ship, which means we will never leave it. The devil is real. May God have mercy on us all. And we're back. So, um, I don't know how much I really have to add. Like we said, kind of up at the top, it's not a terrible movie. It's not a train wreck. There's parts of it that are even fairly good, but there's just not a lot going on for a lot of it. And also, the movie's pushing two hours, and it probably would have been better served being about an hour 40. Yeah. Just because, as you said, Matt, those Night Watchmen scenes all just kind of blend together very much so they get to be a a pretty huge drag i've got a a couple notions chief among them is that uh well this was spurred by bees walking into the room partway through the movie and asking how is it and i said not great and they uh sort of sized it up and said well at least it's not more quippy bullshit like that renfield movie from earlier this year and i said true And a a series of thoughts occurred to me in an instant. First was that Nick Cage as Dracula in this movie would be kind of like that mixing and matching, I think, would be it's the the best part of Renfield. And then I think it would improve this movie a good deal. I wanted going in Dracula to be more personable and just more like a person (laughs) than than what we got. Now, like I said, I think before the plot rundown, the creature design did sort of grow on me after a while once i realized that he was never going to change i guess i just relaxed into it i assumed that he was going to drink blood and become steadily more human the more he imbibed the more crew members he offed and if anything he just became more bestial or we just saw more of his well beast he just form. he just picked up strength i think is really right. the only thing so not how I would have done it. I, I think if he had been by the time of their final confrontation as the ship is crashing into the rocks, if he had been, if not Nick Cage, then somebody. And then there was this sense that he could disappear invisibly into English society. Then I think that civilizational threat that Anna was talking about would have felt a little more pointed, you know, a little a little more credible than sure. certainly that tease we get of him at the end was was laugh out loud funny with the rat like Nosferatu incisors that look look like he should be stabbing through his own lower lip all the time. <laughs> right. And the other thought that occurred to me, you know, because if you don't, because what I said when we reviewed Renfield. And I was saying it ever since it was announced because everyone went nuts for, oh, my God, Nick Cage is going to play Dracula. 
And right away, I guess contrarian that I am, what I said was, I don't want Nick Cage to play Dracula. I want Nick Cage to play Renfield because I, I, I think he could be more unhinged in that role. Dracula, even at his most sort of feral, is at least a little more calm and collected than any screen depiction of Renfield that I've ever seen. And there have been some great ones, some Hall of Famers. Tom Waits is my favorite, of course, but Dwight Fry is losing that head-to-head just by a hair. Right. Yeah, well, the thing about Dracula is he's got that sort of lordly thing going on. He's, he's, yeah, and he's, he's, got... and he's world-weary. He's, he's lived for centuries, and he's kind of seen it all, so he's a little bit over it. Yeah, he doesn't have it in him to be manic. You you need mania for Renfield. The Well, the, the best Dwight Fry Renfield moment, and I know you know what I'm referring to, is him on the sure. Demeter in the cargo hold looking up, doing that bizarre facsimile of a laugh (laughs) 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 so if they had dug a it could even still be a woman if you want to subvert our expectations but if they if they had dug a renfield out of one of those boxes i think that would have given the movie a lot more personality and then dracula could have been more of a berserk animal and you would still have a villainous presence who had the stamp of humanity on him, and it yeah. would be the movie wouldn't be quite so leaden. It wouldn't be quite so bogged down with scenes of random sailors disappearing and muttering and trying to. They would have they would have had something to butt heads with that didn't just involve. <laughs> a swift execution under cover of darkness <laughs> over and over and right. over again. You know, he, he could even, even been in captivity the whole movie, do it in like a, cause like as Renfield is in, in the, in the source material, you know, he's in an asylum the whole time. He's just kind of this uh, Hannibal Lecter figure who's only good for verbal sparring matches. He doesn't have to pose a physical threat at all, but pick his brains to find out about Dracula. That's more exciting. It's like trying to get to the bottom of the whole Buffalo Bill situation. You know, you're in trouble when the key to your salvation is in the mind of a homicidal maniac who who <laughs> means you harm, you know? And so how are you going to coax that information out of him? That's Clarice Starling's quandary. And I had that been the situation in this movie, I think the whole middle stretch would have been just a completely different animal. Yeah, I think that's true. I do appreciate this movie being unpretentious. Yes. It did remind me of those movies I loved in the early aughts in that regard. I mean, it it's unpretentious and yet just self-serious enough. It, it's not, like, self-aware. It's not, like... Jokey. Jokey, right. But But nor is it highfalutin. It's it, it does hit a sweet spot that way. There's trauma insofar as Anna, <laughs> her backstory is basically that she was Dracula's blood fridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we didn't touch on this much, but you probably could intuit it from the fact that this is set in the late 1890s. And we told you that Clemens is a black man, had some trouble plying his trade as a doctor for obvious reasons. Yeah. And so he's got that kind of, I've had to fight the world my whole life sort of a thing going on. But yeah, the movie, it's not about trauma. (laughs) It's not, there's not a lot of highfalutin talk about 
how people live and how they interact and any of that stuff. It's just, we've got a monster. We got to kill the fucking monster. <laughs> right. Well, and even, and I, I didn't like the way it was played. I thought that it was, it just d- didn't do anything for me emotionally when Anna goes up in smoke at the end. However, the fact that it even ends that way, it reminded me of, you know, the, the love story in the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing ends on a weird downer where he werewolves out and kills Kate Beckinsale and then mournfully mm-hmm. howls, you know, under the light of the full moon. And it, it just feels tropey and classic having the romance end tragically that way. Even if it doesn't actually pluck your heartstrings at all, you can appreciate it in a distant kind of way because it harkens back to, it just feels like a Lon Chaney Jr. kind of thing. Like nobody, you, you feel sorry for the Wolfman, but those movies aren't tearjerkers. You know, they're just kind of maybe maybe when you're a little kid and you're watching them for the first time, you feel more emotionally invested in his plight. But it's just kind of I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. I guess just hitting even half acidly hitting that mark. There's a certain pleasure to be had there. If like me, you like classic monster movies and pseudo classic pastiches of classic monster movies i say classic from from the mid aughts yeah right from when i was going through puberty which means they're classics to me (laughs) (laughs) and they're old to zoomers that's right zoomers can't even tell the difference between van helsing and the wolfman that's just it's it's all the same shit to them yeah it doesn't have you know uh I, I can't even think of the name of the, like, phone game, the gameplay footage of which is in, like, half of TikToks running concurrently with Family Guy clips. Oh, yeah, there's, I'm right, there's, yes, oh, I know the one you yeah. mean. So I, I, I was going to make a smart-ass remark, but I don't even have the <laughs> sufficient knowledge to, to pull it off. To even mount a roast, yeah. Uh, fucking old. Um, (laughs) but yeah, it's got various bits of those flavors that we enjoy. And as you've admitted, and as I'm ready to admit about myself, we're kind of predisposed by just the era in which we grew up and the things we watched when we watched them to like them. But still, just because we know why we like them doesn't mean we don't get to like them anymore. Yeah, and it would be nice if, if those kind of movies came back into vogue briefly. I wanted desperately for the Dark Universe to uh, to take off, even if it was bad. I just want more movies like that. You know, I like the Benicio Del Toro Wolfman movie just fine. <laughs> if it's got the fog and if it's got Anthony Hopkins hamming it up, it's, it's <laughs> if it's got the mutton chops, <laughs> it's, it's just... That's a pretty silly movie, all right. I watched that relatively recently. Yeah, it is at that. But I I am partial to movies like that. I mean, obviously in the 90s, I think the the Coppola Dracula kicked off a cycle of movies that were derived from, that were, you know, a little handsomer and a little more highfalutin that were derived from Victorian horror literature. You got Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which were definitely pitched at the same level in which we're slightly affiliated. And then you got later on Sleepy Hollow, which I think Coppola produced or executive produced. And 
somewhere in the mid nineties. You got that John Malkovich Jekyll and Hyde movie, which I like more than I should. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is an American zoetrope production, so it's yeah. definitely Coppola brought it to life, provided the machinery, so to speak. Right. So you know, p- point being, we periodically flirt with these little horror renaissances, and they've all got a kind of a different flavor to them. Voyage of the Demeter definitely feels less like a '90s vintage and more like a early to mid 2000s vintage. I would say that sure. uh, the connective tissue between the 90s resurgence and the 2000s would be the first Brendan Fraser mummy, which feels like it mm. belongs to both in more or less yeah. equal measure and is, in that regard, a perfect film. <laughs> Just like really checks <laughs> checks a lot of my boxes. And then after that, you get Van Helsing, which is the same director, but much uh, cheesier. Yeah, much cheesier. That's the lineage that terminates i guess in last voyage of the demeter or dracula last voyage of the demeter if you're antipodean but uh the movie's not performing from what i gather and so i don't think it's going to put any chum in the water for you know the studio execs to like you, no one's gonna no one in hollywood is gonna work up the hunger for more projects like this obviously the tom cruise mummy was dead on arrival and therefore so was the the whole dark universe experiment alas because, like yeah. I said, even when they're bad, I could always do with more movies like this. Yeah. I was reading somebody's speculation on Twitter about the fact that Last Demeter... Or Last Demeter. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the other Demeter. Um, it is performing so poorly. I am so the last poorly. of my kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is... They flirt with that just a little bit. They're like, everybody wants steamships now. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and it's still very much a, it's a wooden ship, and it's a sailboat, yeah. a, a sailing vessel. But anyway, what with the fact that this movie is just performing absolutely atrociously, doing no numbers whatsoever, somebody was speculating that the salem's lot remake or you know if you prefer to call it just a new adaptation of the novel that that's another way to look at it has been on the shelf for like well over a year and now at least this person seemed to think last voyage of the demeter doing poorly might have put the last nail in that coffin and warner brothers will just leave that movie on the shelf forever well warner brothers has been getting more and more brazen about stunts like that well, that's that's exactly it. Their speculation was driven more than a little bit by the fact that it is Warner Brothers. And I'm not going to say that I was really champing at the bit for that movie, because first of all, you know, I, I haven't read Salem's Lot and I haven't seen the original film. And also it was directed by Gary Dauberman. Oh, we've yeah. established our general disdain for Mr. Dauberman. On the other hand, you know, it's a Stephen King adaptation even the bad ones, even like the worst ones, tend to be watchable. Sometimes even compulsively watchable in the case of, like, say, a dream catcher. <laughs> I doubt that it would have been anywhere near as wackadoo as that film, which, as I believe I've said in the past, is probably still my favorite episode of the podcast that we've We should done just re review Dreamcatcher annually. That would make at least <laughs> at least one of our listeners very happy. It's like, yeah. So just make that every centennial, we'll we'll just watch Dreamcatcher again. 
mean, that wasn't our hundredth episode. I think that was um, was that the Halloween triple feature or quadruple yes. feature or whatever the fuck it was. Well, it was yeah. it was the Halloween triple feature, and then episode one hundred and one was Halloween ends. I believe or kills. I think it was ki- yeah. Ends was much too recent. You're right. It was kills. Uh-huh. I have a soft spot for Annabelle comes home from our Uva. Speaking of Gary Dollarman. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we just keep talking about all the stupid demon names. <laughs> the, the Black Shuck and whatnot. Uh-huh. Anyway, so I, I would have, to finish my digression, I would have liked to see Salem's Lot come out. And obviously, it's just one person's speculation. This is not confirmed or anything. But it does seem to be taking longer and longer. And I am beginning to wonder, is that movie going to come out? And in a broader sense, I think you're right. Studio execs are going to see this movie tanking and they're not going to be like, all right, let's roll out the mid two thousands again. Right. They're going to, they're going to stop taking Del Toro's phone calls (laughs) if they, if they hadn't already. Yeah. And again, even with a movie that's not, particularly good it's just refreshing to have an alternative to one of the like three predominant strands of horror that's out there right now at least in the conception that i'm going to throw out here which i think is broadly applicable obviously for reasons of brevity it's not going to be a hundred percent accurate but you've got the highbrow it's about trauma thread basically There are variations on that theme, obviously, and there are different ways for horror to be highbrow, but that's one big thread. And then there's the sort of quiet, quiet, bang, exposition dump, James Wan or James Wan imitator thread. And then there's quippy self-aware bullshit. (laughs) And frankly, I am tired of... All three of those different branches of the horror tree in varying degrees, but I'm really a little bit fed up with all three, and that's why I cling to a movie like this like a piece of driftwood (laughs) when it comes along, or like... I'll never let the go Pope's Jack. Exorcist, for example. Yeah, another yeah, another throwback in a very definite way. I think that you know, if we're gonna get taxonomical about it, I think you can carve the genre up into those categories. That is more or less the lay of the land. I think that um, you know, as much as prestige horror fatigue has set in for me, I still like movies like that. And when they're done well, they are my favorite kind of horror movie, which is why I hold them to a kind of punishingly high standard at times (laughs) sure but i'm not necessarily tired of movies like that just because i'm always salivating over the prospect of one of them really knocking my socks off Uh, it it could happen you know next one could be right around the corner i do i go into those movies with an open mind i'll admit more so than say the latest conjuring verse installment you know the nun 2 is coming up and i would be lying if i said i was going into that with a completely open mind obviously you ha- you still have to have the capacity to be surprised right but writing's on the wall let's be honest I, yeah expectations are low there which frankly can only redound to the film's benefit yes i think yeah i agree with you i mean obviously i think going into these 
as you call them, prestige horror movies. Yeah, anything but elevated. I don't care what fucking... <laughs> right, sure, absolutely. Categorical thing you slap on it. Anything, anything but elevated, I will accept. I'm also keen to watch that sort of stuff, but as we've kind of been dealing with over the last however many months, it seems like even those, they're just not hitting the same way they did even a few years ago yeah and even when they're good enough it gives you that mugatu crazy pills feeling when they get just endless raves and you just feel like a hater and a, yeah. and a, and a stick in the mud which is unpleasant yeah i mean we it's i was thinking about it the other day i can't even remember the last movie we gave if not 100 percent unreserved adulation at least like mostly unmitigated praise to yeah it's just been this was a frighteningly long time ago at this point but i remember we reviewed lighthouse and parasite and i want to say maybe doctor sleep in fairly close proximity to one another lighthouse and parasite i remember being like weeks apart i might be wrong they might have been consecutive they were very close together that might never happen again <laughs> if they if well yeah that that was that was a f- very much a fluke thing and uh-huh. quite frankly i still stand by the decision for us to review parasite but we were stretching the boundaries of our domain a little bit by throwing that on the docket yeah the stuff underneath the house is pretty much straight up horror and we're on pretty safe ground there but the rest of the movie, it's a little more questionable. So, in a sense, we cheated a little bit. But yeah, I mean, you, th- you throw that together with The Lighthouse and with Doctor Sleep, as you said, all within the space of maybe six to eight weeks, I think. That was a very good run. And one, you're right, we're not likely to, to see again. But I just, whenever I post a new episode, <laughs> I feel like my blurbs are just sort of dismissive and i don't want us to look like just a couple of pricks who are impossible to satisfy yeah but movies aren't hitting the mark lately i don't know yeah well i mean it's it's not and it's not like all of our retro reviews of which there have been very few because generally there are more than enough horror movies new ones to keep us busy and we don't even cover all of them no but, uh, you know, and occasionally we go a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, as we did for Parasite. Although, in our defense, the buzz on that one, all the headlines I was seeing were something to the effect of Bong Joon-ho's new horror film takes the palm door. You know, that's basically all I knew. That was sure. before it had, like, serious, before it was, like, really perceived as being an Oscar contender, much less a Best Picture winner. So I didn't know how much of a horror movie it was going to be going in. I think we have seen movies that we just decided not to review just because they were irrelevant <laughs> to our yeah, to our, a, to a our few. vision statement. But that was that was a, an edge case, I guess you could say. Yeah. Anyway, where was I going with this? Oh, we, we don't do that many retro reviews. That would be one way to shake things up and, and get away from the feeling of crankiness. <laughs> but but we, we generally don't have to. We've resorted to that in the past. And it's not like they've all been winners either. We watched no. The Keep which is entertaining, but bizarre and kind of stupid, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, it it was mostly a few of those 
I think an unusual concentration of those fell during COVID. Yes. Where there was kind of a bunch of stuff came off the schedule or kicked into the next year. Granted, we also ourselves shut down for about three months, but we just, we had fewer new releases to keep up with. And that's true. My ethos with the podcast has always been, you know, we want to weigh in on new horror movies that theoretically a decent number of people might be going to see. I mean, we're, we're so much almost, <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it got, you know, well outside of the zeitgeist as it turns out. <laughs> right. But it, you know, it got a wide release. We're not talking yeah. about like, Oh, I got to catch every single shutter original or anything like that, or movies that come out in, only a handful of theaters, although Cobweb was an exception to that. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might come down to us needing to maybe relax the insistence on keeping up with every single new one and limit that to stuff that's really, at least potentially, in the zeitgeist. And then, yeah, we could work in some older stuff. And whether it's stuff we've already watched that we know we're going to like, or at least we'll know we have a lot of stuff to say and chew on, or whether it's stuff we haven't watched yet, I guess we can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, and Lord knows we don't have really much of an audience that we're catering to, so I don't feel beholden to anyone's expectations other than <laughs> other than yours, I guess. <laughs> right, well, so, you know, basically all of our listeners are people we know personally, and I, yeah. I think they're on board with whatever direction we want to go in. Right, so I'm not even proposing it as like a programming shakeup per se, and I do like, you know, some of the new horror movies that are more deep cuts are the ones that sometimes get my spidey senses tingling, so I wouldn't want to put those on the chopping block just to make room for who knows what giallo movie that we could have in our crosshairs <laughs> instead. Right. I don't know. There's there's no one way to, to go about it. The landscape is bound to change the horror film landscape. We're just sort of riding that wave. And I think our fatigue is ahead of the curve, but it, it can't we're not like Nostradamus over here. We can't be that ahead of schedule. The rest of the movie going public will catch up with us. It's just a matter of time. The first guy who said, I've had enough of these superhero movies. His name was Will Connor, and he composed our theme music. <laughs> well, and, and it would it would seem that the rest of the world is catching up to your buddy Will, our buddy Will. Yeah, it's, but you know, Blue Beetle's going to make about $14 by yeah, the looks right, exactly. of it. But uh, yeah, these things take time. Yeah. Well, all of that massive tangent aside, do we want to maybe offer a couple of recommendations? I'm going to recommend the Frank Langella Dracula from, I want to say, 79, specifically. Mm. Uh, I think it's a little underrated. I think Donald Pleasance plays Van Helsing, which is like, oh, right. that's fun. He's right at home, having played, you know, sure. in, in Halloween. I'm almost positive I'm right about that. In any case, Frank Langella definitely is Dracula, and he's a lot of fun. He has that stately thing that you were describing a little while back, but he also has berserker rage moments. None more berserk than the finale when he is finally slain, and he just turns into like a, a rabid raccoon or something. He just starts like, <laughs> you know trying to claw everybody's eyes out and, and, and there's much gnashing of fangs and uh, thrashing around and 
the reason I bring this up is because he is bested on a boat, and ah. it is very unlike the book, but kind of wonderful and exhilarating. And a, it, in some ways, it's it's a lot less ostentatious than all the sturm and drang of the collapsing masts and the lightning and thunder and stuff that you get in this movie and the long monologues. But it's more impactful, I thought. He's just kind of... Well, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of how they kill him exactly, because part of the pleasure of a vampire movie is wondering, is it going to be a stake? Is it going to be sunlight? Is it going to be some more obscure method? How are they going to do it? Uh, especially if you're watching like a long-running series, like a Christopher Lee Hammer Dracula thing, you think like, okay, well, it was a stake last time, so this time they got to think outside the box. You know, that's <laughs> I wouldn't rob you of that. The only thing that matters is that it's on a boat, and it is better boat action, I think, than what this movie's climax delivers. So for that reason, Dracula 79, starring Frank Langella, directed by... Oh, what the hell? Badham? Badham? I yeah, think his name is. The guy John did, Badham. Yeah, the guy who did Saturday Night Fever. I think it was his follow-up feature. Uh, I think it would have to be, because they're only a couple years apart. Yeah, I was just looking it up, actually. And he also directed The Hard Way, which is a movie I've been shilling for, I think, to you and to everyone else I've ever met <laughs> for years. <laughs> the one where James Woods plays a cop and Michael J. Fox plays an actor who wants to do like method research on playing a cop. And so he uh -huh. tags along and bugs the shit out of James Woods. <laughs> it's a very, to care for. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very entertaining film. So apparently Lawrence Olivier plays Van Helsing in the okay. dracula film you were talking Donald about pleasance is in it i think he might be seward actually he is seward i'm okay. i'm saying that so okay olivia is also very good casting i will have to revisit that one apparently it's been a few years yeah for sure i am going to recommend 30 days of night it's a film i've probably recommended before but that's fine Number one, obviously, it's a vampire film. Also, it does, you know, spoilers for 30 Days of Night, in case you care, it does the sort of poignant, climactic, I'm gonna let myself go up in flames thing after getting bitten by a vampire. That's how 30 Days of Night ends. Josh Hartnett has been bitten by at least one vampire. And then he kind of sits there with his girlfriend and watches the sunrise and goes up in flames. And I think it works a lot better in that movie. For sure. Not for nothing. That's that's also basically how Blade 2 ends. It's a little bit different because the character going up in flames has been a vampire the whole time. But it's the villain's daughter with whom Blade has sort of a half-assed dollop of sexual tension <laughs> yeah, once again it's just striving for that classic gravitas you know that lon cheney jr thing yeah she's been grievously mortally wounded and decides she wants to watch the sunrise and that also is a little bit more impactful than this film although in blade 2 it's really just all about straight up genre pleasures in 30 days of night it's a little more actually emotional but anyway, 30 Days of Night, it's a very enjoyable vampire film. I haven't watched it in a while. I think I'm actually probably due for a rewatch. It follows, as I said, Josh Hartnett. He's a cop, 
in a small town in Alaska, one of those parts of Alaska where there are stretches of the year where the sun just doesn't come up at all. Uh-huh. 30 days of night. It's right there in the title. They have a month where it's always dark and a bunch of vampires kind of descend on the town and start chowing down. Danny Houston plays the lead vampire. He's great. I generally enjoy his villainous character work, which is 90% of his work. Yes. But so often he just plays like kind of smug douchebags. He rarely gets to <laughs> right. He rarely gets to cut loose like he does in that movie. I really didn't think he had it in him until I saw 30 Days of Night. He really is sort of bestial, but still capable of a human verbosity. It's a good middle ground. It's more like what I wish this movie's Dracula had been. Yeah. So uh, check it out. It's good stuff. Well, Dracula's given us the tap on the shoulder, so I guess it's time to wrap things up. Mm, yes. Until next time, I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Jaron Daisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from The Last Voyage of the Demeter official trailer, uploaded by Universal Pictures. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, September 3rd, and we will be discussing Sympathy for the Devil, in which a cabbie is forced to drive a dangerous and mysterious passenger around for the night. See you then. Thank you.